0: Hello, and welcome to episode three of sheep thrills. Um, This is your host, Emily Lamb coming at you live from WRGW. We're back again. It's Monday night. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about today. We've got a really interesting show today. Um, A lot going on a lot to talk about. So just a little overview today, we're going to be talking about we're going to do a deep dive into the Virginia gubernatorial race. We're gonna be talking about the many, many labor strikes that have been happening over the past several months. Um, Plus, we're gonna be talking a little bit about Matthew McConaughey and whether or not he's running for governor. gonna talk about that just very briefly, very fun um and then last but not least, my intern Ethan is gonna be coming onto the show. he's gonna be doing his first intern takeover and he's gonna be talking about redistricting specifically in Nashville. It's gonna be a really interesting conversation. Can't wait to bring him in, but without further ado, let's just jump right into it so. I talked about Virginia um, a, c- a couple of weeks ago, my first episode of the season, but really only very briefly, just kind of talking about it as something that we need to look at moving forward. But I think that it's uh, important that we talk more about it now. Um, there's been a lot going on with the race. It's very much gearing up. We're like basically two weeks away from election day at this point. Um, and so we're going to obviously talk about it next week and then. Um, yeah. So then it's the election day is on Tuesday. So then we're not going to be able to talk about it until the dust has settled. Um, but it should definitely be an interesting um, election. So anyway, I just wanted to break it down. I think it's interesting that we talk about candidates. We talk about what's going on in the race. Um, we talk also beyond the governorship. We talk about uh, the lieutenant governorship and the attorney general's race, just because those are other things that are going on as well that kind of are getting. A little bit ignored for that like top line issue but I think that it's important also before we start talking about this right at the top I'm gonna say it and I say it all the time and if you're friends with me you're gonna be like Emily you're really annoying stop talking about these things but especially if you live in Virginia or New Jersey make sure that you're registering for your mail-in ballots I got my mail-in ballot for Pennsylvania and I already sent it back. Got some not that there's like any like huge elections going on in Pennsylvania uh this year, but it's always fun to vote in an off-year election. It makes you feel very civically engaged, and that's a good thing. We like feeling civically engaged, so make sure you're registering for your mail-in-ballots. Deadlines are rapidly approaching. And as soon as you get your ballot, fill it out, turn it in, don't let yourself procrastinate it because you don't want to forget, and then the election comes down to three. Um, votes and your your ballot is sitting on your kitchen counter because you forgot to mail it in. So anyway, it's extremely easy and important to register for your mail-in ballot and then vote regardless of how you vote um, in this race. But to get into the actual breakdown of the race, I'm going to go through both candidates, I'm going to talk about some issue statements, I'm going to then talk more about the significance of the actual race. So first of all, Terry McAuliffe democrat former governor of virginia from 2014 to 2018 and then the chairman of the dnc from 2001 or before that he was the chairman of the dnc from 2001 to 2005 so you know a party elder he's been involved in the democratic party for a long time has specific um executive experience in virginia which is both an asset and a detriment depending on how you look at it um because, you know, he, since he has that legislative experience, he can say, well, I was already the governor. So I clearly am the person that's most equipped to be governor because of X, Y, Z. But at the same time, he has got all of the different things that happened during his tenure as governor for his opposition candidates to point out and say, well, if he wasn't able to get X, Y, Z done in the four years he was governor, what's to say he's going to be able to get those things done now? Which is an important point. um, And it's an important uh, vulnerability for his campaign when he is basically, he is not the incumbent, but he's basically the incumbent uh, because uh, gubernatorial candidate or governors in Virginia can't, ru- can't run for two terms in a row, which is a little funky, but that's just the way it works. Um, so when you go onto his website and also just generally in the statements that he's made throughout the campaign, I kind of break them the main his main issues into three blocks. Basically the economy, both urban and rural, recovering from COVID, agricultural issues, all of that. Um, Education, which I'm gonna talk about is a really big issue in the campaign right now. He talks a lot about lower and higher education. Um, And then also just a lot of general social justice issues. He talks about housing, talks about equity and equality. Yeah, especially that's also kind of uh, kind of a combining issue with other concepts. He's talking about like rural uh, economy and STEM education. They're all kind of combining together, also like bridging the gap between those uh, three issue sections. But I just think it's easier to just like break them up into those three. He has like 15 or so different issue um, platforms on his uh, website. They're all very interesting. It's also he because he was the former executive, he's got a lot of his issue statements already like out and available in the world. So he doesn't have to do as much work kind of communicating his messaging just because he's been there. He's done that in a way that his um, uh, Republican opposition, Glenn Youngkin, doesn't have available because he's never had elected office before. So moving to Glenn Youngkin. Republican, uh, again, has never held any kind of elected office before, which, you know, is a benefit and a detriment in some ways. It's helpful because he um, doesn't have to worry about like previous votes or previous issues kind of uh, being an issue for him. But he also does not have any executive experience that he can point to. He's actually a former CEO and the president of the Carlyle Group, which is a global investment firm and something very interesting that... um uh, um, Terry McAuliffe would like you to know is that um, the the Carlisle group had a I'm not exactly sure what role so I don't want to say anything that I don't know for sure but he did play a role in um, the the loss of Taylor Swift's master so the reason that she has to re-record all of her albums is in part because of Glen Youngkin which you know what you don't you never want to get the Swifties mad because the Swifties will organize and the Swifties will end you so I really think that um, our, our dear friend Glenn Youngkin did not think through angering the Swifties um, when he decided to run for governor. But that's, I suppose, neither here nor there. But at the same time, Terry McAuliffe was um, like releasing merch that ba- like that basically said, like, Swifties for McAuliffe, or maybe, I think they said Swifties against Youngkin, which is even better. And you know that that merch sold out in, like, minutes. So, you know. The, the, the issues come up in, in interesting places. You never think that Taylor Swift is going to be an issue in a Virginia gubernatorial race, but here we are. Um, So getting into Glenn Youngkin and his issue page, again, I'm going basically straight when I'm talking about the issues um, that they are kind of primarily promoting. I'm basically going off of the issue pages on their own websites. I think that's kind of the most fair way to do it. I'm also, you know, I'm I'm referring to their debate presences and, and the their, like, stated statements in other newspapers and stuff, but I think that, like, the prim- primary way, the primary place to get this information about their positions is directly from the source, directly from their website, not from a newspaper that could even take their debate statements and, and spin it in some way. So the interesting thing about Glenn Youngkin is that he doesn't have an official issues page. But instead, has a quote day one game plan, um, which I, I understand the idea of saying, you know, when day one I'm going to get to work, like I'm going to hit the ground running, and this these are all the things I'm going to do, as opposed to saying here are all my stances on the issues. I understand that, I suppose, aesthetically, but at the same time, like I, I like to think that I'm a fairly educated voter. Like I, I, I tend to do my research. I kind of know what I'm talking about when I'm when I'm a, um looking at people's websites and doing this research, I didn't even really know where to look to find his positions. I was like, all right, I guess this must be it. Like I had to click around to a couple tabs before I could actually find his issue statements. Um, And then even then, his issue statements weren't particularly robust. And before you come at me saying that I'm a bad partisan and blah, 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 blah Terry McAuliffe's issue statements also weren't great. I didn't think that they were, like, partic- like, again, this is an aesthetic thing. This is a campaign thing, and I am a campaign person, so we're going to talk about it. Also, this is my radio show. I can talk about whatever I want. Um, it's a powerful thing. Um, so his, Terry McAuliffe's issue statements page was, like, a lot of, like, pictures that you had to click on, and then you could read, like, a longer statement, which, like, I also don't think is great. It's just, like, write, write what you want. Don't make people click around to a bunch of different things. Don't, like give people a little a little box like it's just in my opinion it's better to like just spoon feed people just like give them the uh give them the content that they want as opposed to making them click around for it make it easier to, for people to be educated about someone's positions because as soon as you make someone click four times they're going to lose interest and then they're going to give up which is whatever maybe that, whatever that says about the voter or that says about the the candidates i don't know but regardless um So, tangent, that was a tangent. But back to my main point, Glenn Youngkin doesn't really have like a specific issues page, but he has his day one game plan. Um, And he has those policies split or his day one game plan split into five main categories, which are, um, and I'm reading this directly from the website, like this, this is all a big quote. One is cut costs for Virginians to keep our community safe. Three, reinvigorate job growth. Four, restore excellence in education. and. Five make government work for you and that's a lot of buzzwords um, and again, Terry McAuliffe uses plenty of buzzwords himself everyone uses buzzwords, it's the best way to get your message across because you only have so long to have people's attention, as I just said um, but again, it, it's not the most robust position page in the world um, we don't know much about his positions based off of it um, significantly you, the word COVID never appears on his issues page, which for a campaign that you're running in 2020 and 2021, like at the peak of a global pandemic, uh, I'm, I'm surprised that COVID doesn't appear. Um, COVID appears several times on Terry McAuliffe's page when he's talking about the economy, he's talking about education, COVID comes up a lot. Um, but it's very clear that Glenn Youngkin is trying to separate himself in some substantial way. From the issue of COVID, um, the other interesting thing on Glenn Youngkin's page is um, uh, an entirely separate tab labeled "Parents" for Youngkin, um, and it's I- indicating that education again is a very important issue in this campaign. Um, so the 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 reason that education is so important, I'll kind of kind of jump into some of like the main issues in the campaign that I want to talk about. Um, A lot of it is based off of, like, the critical race theory nonsense. Like, one of the bullet points on Glenn Youngkin's page is banning the use of critical race theory. Um, Critical race theory in schools, which is ridiculous, but I digress. It's, it's, It's a silly issue that I don't want to spend time talking about. Regardless, critical race theory is a component of it and then obviously there's there's a lot of conflict right now in public schools with covid and whether or not um students should be going to school in person whether they should be masked yada 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 um there's whether whether students and and um teachers should be required to be vaccinated that's a very important um important argument that's going on in schools right now so kind of regardless of the where the campaign is education is a big issue right now um so the, the the other kind of big issue, the reason that, that education is a big, big component of this campaign, is because Terry McAuliffe made the statement in the debate recently, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they teach, which Yunkin characterized as, quote, shocking and disqualifying. Ooh, shocking and disqualifying. Ooh. Um, which, I, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe I'm reading too little into his statement or maybe glenn youngkin is reading too much into the statement but there's a reason you send kids to school and it's because teachers and administrators know how to teach and parents generally like don't have like a degree in education right like isn't that the whole point of sending your child to public school is that they can get an education that they're not going to be able to get at home and I don't know maybe maybe I'm gonna make enemies because of this, but like if you want to know exactly what your your child is consuming academically, you want to control like every aspect of what they're learning like homeschooling is a thing homeschool your child i don't I don't know why there's this like incessant demand from the Youngkin campaign to say that like parents should be involved in every single aspect of a child's education because that's the reason that we have a school system. Like, it just seems so counterintuitive. I don't know if I'm the crazy one here, but just call it shocking and disqualifying for saying that parents shouldn't be the ones writing curriculum. That's crazy. Like, the, the whole reason that we send children to school is because there's people that are there that have gone to school for many, many years to come up with curriculums that are necessarily more effective at like teaching and and creating children and there's also so many options for parents like there's homeschooling there's public school there's private school there's charter schools like actually i don't know what the charter school situation is in virginia but regardless um there's so many different paths for parents that if they don't like what one teacher is teaching then just like go somewhere else also again it's just it's just silly that that parents also that Glenn Youngkin thinks that parents should be the be all end all of education. That being said, I do not have children. I do not know um, <laughs> exactly what's going on there. Um, but if I do end up having children, the reason I'm going to send them to school is because I know that I can't give them a full education, but I do know that the I trust the people that I'm sending them to school with are actually going to be able to give them the full education that they need. That's I just think it's very interesting, and then parents obviously, Glenn Youngkin is very much weaponizing this this statement that parents shouldn't be involved in a child's education, um, using that on the like the Parents for Youngkin website, um, just having like a, a separate tab, like you know he's all these candidates have tons and tons of volunteer groups. They have Women for Candidate. They have Veterans for Candidate. They have Senior Citizens for Candidate. Blah blah blah. Um. But to specifically feature the Parents for Yunkin website and to use that kind of as a central focus of the campaign uh, is very interesting. He's definitely going to continue to like push that issue, even though it's kind of faded out of um, people's minds, going to continue like running that sentence over and over again in ads. Um, and it is for sure hard for um, McAuliffe to kind of fight against um, obviously, like, I can say whatever I want because I am a student radio host. Like, n- nobody nobody really is going to sit, you know, hear what I say and then, like, use that to inform policy, at least for now. Um, but obviously, it's a lot, lot harder for McAuliffe to be like, get over yourselves. No, like, educators are the ones that are experts in education, not parents. Um, I can say that. Terry McAuliffe can't say that because he's going to make more enemies uh, among parents than he already has. Um, So regardless, that's that's kind of the the issue on education there. The other big issue, of course, that I already kind of hinted at earlier is covid. Um, There's been a lot of back and forth debates there again. Again. Glenn Youngkin does not have COVID anywhere on his website. He doesn't talk about it at all on his website. So it's a little bit harder to find his positions. That's definitely purposeful. He is trying to separate himself from a lot of those big COVID debates. Um, Terry McAuliffe supports vaccine mandates. Glenn Youngkin believes it's a quote personal choice, but has, you know, in a debate, did encourage all Virginians to get the vaccine. So he isn't kind of playing into that vaccine hesitancy mindset that he definitely could which I guess is is good enough but not enough not enough for me and also not enough for our friend Terry McAuliffe who then basically shot back and 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 claimed that Youngkin was anti-vaccine because he didn't he didn't like specifically or explicitly support um Biden's vaccine mandate um that we talked about I think last week maybe two weeks ago um but again COVID doesn't appear on Youngkin's issue page, so we don't know where he falls on masking in schools from his website. I'm sure he said it um, elsewhere, but we don't know where he falls on masking in schools. We don't know where he falls really on vaccine mandates. We don't know where he falls on um, a lot of different COVID economic issues, um, which is may I say, a problem. Um, Because just because maybe, maybe, I don't even know, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but just because COVID might be kind of on a downturn doesn't mean that the residual effects of COVID are going to go away for a long time, especially those economic issues um, and those like mental health issues and social and parasocial issues that have arisen from COVID, especially in schools. Um, So I do think that it's slightly concerning. I'm also just... To reiterate, I am biased. I mentioned this on the first week, but I probably should say it every week. I am, I am a biased human being. I, <laughs> I don't, I do not have unbiased opinions. You can tell this already, but I don't want to pretend that I am, uh, I am, I am the only set of f- facts. I have my own personal opinion, my own personal set of biases, and I think that it's a little bit ridiculous that um, Terry McAuliffe does not have. COVID on his issues page, I think that it's a little crazy. But again, take of all of this what you will, use it to inform your own opinions, blah, blah, blah. Um, And again, other big issues, of course, law enforcement, critical race theory, all the different like big national press issues um, that we've been talking about over and over again that have been everywhere. Um, and according to a poll, people in Virginia, voters in Virginia said that the main issues are the economy, 26 percent, COVID, 9 percent, race relations, 7 percent, education, 7 percent, um, and healthcare, 6 percent. So just a little bit of a breakdown of kind of those are the main issues that are that are being debated. I also kind of getting into the 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 broader significance of this race. It is just a Trump versus Biden proxy race. We're just redoing 2020 presidential election in 2021 we now have had a year of um or almost a year i guess like eight months nine months of president biden this is just a big old referendum in a purple state on joe biden um it's They've both been endorsed and supported and campaigned for by their respective presidential candidates. They're both benefiting from slash hurting from their candidate's approval rating. So, of course, Biden just had a major dip in his approval ratings over the past couple weeks, past couple months, um, and that's been affecting um, um, Terry McAuliffe pretty significantly. There, It's just, it, it's a one-to-one kind of thing. I think that Virginia is just this, like, microcosm of the... Um, like larger national debate. It's because it is such a purple state Um, and it did, you know, it voted for Biden in pretty significant numbers. It was um, 54 to 44 in 2020, which would indicate that Virginia is gonna go blue um, in this governor's race by like a pretty large percentage. Um, But again, Virginia voters have the benefit of a full year of the Biden presidency, which has been rocky. the issues of Afghanistan and reconciliation and all these different things are very fresh in the mind of voters. Um, So of course, people are really saying that this is going to be a bellwether for the 2022 midterms. I don't, I mean, I definitely think that if, if the Democrats lose by like a huge margin, that's going to be a big issue. But I'm also going to argue that a lot of the chaos of the last five, six months are, again, they're much fresher in the minds of Virginia voters. Whereas in uh, a year from now, when the 2022 midterms are happening, if, if the next year goes really, really, really great, it's going to it's going to be different. And so we can't use Virginia as the only indicator regardless. Um, will the trend will the trend of Virginia going blue continue? We will see The I mean, it's a state race, but it's been fully nationalized. Um. And the amount and the quality of campaign surrogates is really indicative of how nationalized this campaign has been, just like former presidents and um, like big elected officials and all these different candidates um, kind of coming out and throwing their support behind a certain party, because it's it's much less a um, McAuliffe versus Youngkin as it is a Democrat versus Republican, Biden versus Trump kind of race. Um yeah. So then th- this is an, kind of an important quote. The The L.A. Times' Janet Hook had said that, quote, this is the first big test of strength between the parties since Biden was elected and could, quote, um, set the tone for the 2022 midterm election. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so then the other two important races... Um, that are happening around that high level are the Lieutenant Governor race, um, which is Hala Ayala and Winsome Sears. um, And that's a Democrat and the Republican respectively. Um, Ayala was elected to the House of Delegates in 2018. uh, And she was a cybersecurity analysis for Homeland Security before that. Um, And Sears was a former Marine and then was also a delegate from 2002 to 2004. So they're, they're basically the, the the top of the ticket and the uh, lieutenant governor are basically running on a ticket like they're campaigning together. They're working together. But importantly, they are running separately. So it's not like president and vice president um, where like you can you can only vote for like the party. You could actually vote for the Democrat for governor and then the lieutenant governor for a Republican for lieutenant governor. I don't see that happening. But wouldn't that be wild? Um. So that the other important thing is that they're nominated in a separate primary, they're elected in a separate general. So if you'll remember, if you'll cast your mind back to last week, when you were talking about Idaho, that's the same way that they work in Idaho, where the governor and the lieutenant governor run separately, which means that, I don't know if that's necessarily the most conducive way to govern if they hate each other, but, I, you know, I digress, regardless. Um... I don't. I, the other interesting thing is that Ayala is definitely more progressive than um, Terry McAuliffe, but I haven't seen any stories about them like butting heads on the, uh, as they campaign, and it's it's a serious doubt that one wins, um, and the other doesn't, especially. Um, in a, in a race like this, it's it's more about voting for the party than it is about voting for the candidate. Although I have seen some like slight differences in their um, polling, like like Terry McAuliffe has been polling like a little bit behind Ayola. So I don't know if that's going to be indicative of anything. But wouldn't a, wouldn't a split ticket executive just be wild? That'd be so crazy. My my poor Virginia friends, I think would actually freak out. Um, and then the last big race is the attorney general's race. The last big. Uh, I guess, no, it's just, it's just attorney general's race. I was going to say attorneys general, but we're not talking about multiple attorneys general. Um, the one, this is the one last important executive race. Um, and then obviously the whole House of Delegates is getting reelected and yada, yada, yada. Um, but the interesting here, the interesting issue here is that we do have an incumbent. Um, Mark Herring is running for reelection for his third term. Um, and then Jason Miares is um, running... Um, obviously not the incumbent he's just like a private citizen um so and then also their their characterizations of the ag role i thought was very interesting in my in my research that i did about them um herring has characterized the ag role as quote the people's lawyer where miaris is characterizing the ag role as quote the top cop just very interesting in their different interpretations of the role um herring has also or excuse me miaris has said that herring is promoting a quote criminal first victim last mindset kind of playing into the idea of a a kind of crime and punishment um that has been kind of pervasive throughout the lieutenant governor and governor's race as well so that was kind of a really long ramble about the governorship however i think it's important that we talk about it that we get into it election day is november 2nd register for those mail-in ballots um We're going to talk, I think, about there's a couple other elections that are happening on November 2nd. Um, Of course, there's New Jersey. I don't really want to talk about that as much just because I don't think we need to. But there's a couple of local races, um, like the special elections that are happening. I think we're probably going to talk about that next week. So get excited. Um, But regardless, that's kind of all I want to say about Virginia. Again, I'll say it one more time. Register for your mail-in ballot. Register for your mail-in ballot. Just do it, please, for me. Um, I will love you forever. So the next issue I want to talk about today is the labor strikes that have been happening all over the place. Um, if you've been paying any attention to the news at all over the past few months, you'll have seen the news about all of the the major labor strikes that have been happening. Um, as of October first, this is a list that I found. Um, uh, over seven hundred building engineers at Kaiser Permanente in San Francisco are on strike. Thirty four hundred health worker healthcare workers in Oregon. Seventy four hundred healthcare workers. Uh, at the another another case of Permanente are making strikes um, the international alliance of theatrical stage employees almost went on strike that would have been 60,000 workers um, 2,000 frontier communications workers transit workers in Texas Ohio um, public works employees in Minnesota dining workers at Northwestern University group home workers in Connecticut graduate workers at Harvard and Columbia, coal miners in Alabama, carpenters in Washington, um, John Deere workers in Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, um, people at Nabisco, frito Lake, Kellogg, just all over the place. Um, there was strikes over, as as of um, now, there have been strikes on 178 employers this year with 12 strikes, including um, more than 1,000 employees or more, which is kind of a lot I feel like since the school year started every single week I'm checking the news and I see that there's another strike from another company in another state and I think that's kind of crazy I I don't think that I have ever seen that before um like um it just seems like this is a very very unique situation that we're in it's maybe a natural aftershock um of COVID and now that workers have so much more leverage they're now starting to use that leverage a lot more I think that, I also feel like there's an argument that's been made over the past several years that unions are, are, are weakening a lot. And I think that this, the, 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 this over the last couple of months is really showing that no, like unions are not weakening or maybe they had weakened slightly, but they're really like rearing back into strength. I, I, I have the statistic written down somewhere. Um, but the yeah, the approval of labor unions is trending upwards. And it's something like, Eighty percent of Democrats support unions and 47 percent of Republicans, which is pretty big because generally um, it hasn't always been this way. But Democrats are kind of now seem to be like the pro-labor party. And now that all, almost 47, it's so close to 50 percent of Republicans um, supporting labor unions. I think that's a that's a pretty major statistic. Um and again I think the most notable strikes um were the nabisco the Frito lay the Kellogg strikes. I kind of saw a lot of news about that and about um you know having like regular consumers not cross the picket line by not buying those goods um the the like the theater performer strike was pretty big of course, it didn't end up happening they 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 um meet read, met a resolution like hours before the deadline, but sixty thousand people going on strike would have been pretty crazy um And then the John Deere strike also very big because that was 10,100 John Deere workers across three states. Um, So obviously that was a really, really big strike. And the, the other story that came out of that was that John Deere tried to use salaried workers to do like that physical manual labor. Um, and I don't exactly know how long it was, but it only took like a couple hours before the first 911 call, because obviously all of these salaried workers didn't actually know how to use the equipment and then ended up getting injured um, on the job. And then the, the the question is, of course, but everyone's saying, oh, but these, these, this is unskilled labor. This is unskilled labor. We don't have to pay them more. It's unskilled. But then as soon as you put a salaried worker in and you try to get them to, to operate this heavy machinery, they get injured because, of course, there's no such thing as unskilled labor. There's no such thing as unskilled labor. Um, so, regardless, um, Americans have been leaving their jobs at staggering rates. Um, a record of 4.3 million quit in August alone. Um, and so There's a shortage of workers in the market and these union leaders are really taking advantage of it um, because workers have so much more leverage now. Um, They're in much higher demand. The the work um, companies are in much higher demand for workers than frankly workers are for um, those jobs. And so they're taking that leverage seriously. They're using it to their advantage. Um. And the, the the idea is they need to use that leverage before they lose it again, like before the market like rights itself again, and then and then um, companies are able to take as much advantage of workers as they want. I don't. We'll we'll see. We'll see. I I can't really speak to this. I don't really know. But I don't know really if workers or if employers are ever going to have the same kind of control over um, employees as they have in the past. I think that there's just been too much of a social change that's been happening kind of like under the surface um for them to ever like co- go exactly back to normal but again i'm sure that many 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 people have said things like that about many other large social kind of upheavals that have happened um and things have kind of always gone back to normal so fingers crossed we'll see how it goes but anyway anyway um union leaders basically Angry with employers for quote, failing to raise pay to match new profits, and are disappointed by the lack of high-quality jobs. Also frustrated that wage growth is not keeping pace with inflation. Over the last year, I believe uh, there was a four per- average of a four percent wage increase, but there was a five point four percent inflation over that time period as well. So we're gonna we're gonna put on our econ hats for a second. The purchasing power of their income has decreased, which basically means that they received like a 1.4% pay cut because the even though they're getting 4% more money, they're not getting the amount of money that they need to actually cover the, the new costs of inflation. So I, I kind of feel like all of these strikes are very much like an F around and find out kind of situation. Um... all these labor leaders and labor unions are basically saying we you can you can mess with us you can stop us from um doing what we need to do we just won't come back and you won't have enough employees to to do what you need to do um so uh, yeah anyway i just think i i i I think that labor unions are, are playing a really interesting game right now and i think they're kind of winning because again they have so much more leverage over companies than um Than than the companies have over them, and again they were they were they were lauded as like essential workers. They were like, wow, all these people are doing such a great job, like keeping the the supply chain alive and yada yada yada. But they weren't being compensated for their time accurately. They weren't being paid as if they were essential workers and heroes. Um, and the 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 crazy thing there is that the like unemploy. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. That's the first time that's happened to me. Um. Employers, right, employers aren't essential to employees as much now, Um, and it doesn't have anything to do, really, with this is kind of, we don't know this exactly because we don't have enough evidence, but we know that it basically doesn't have to do with unemployment, um, unemployment benefits, because when unemployment benefits ran out for a lot of Americans, the level of unemployment didn't really change. Um, Basically, you know, the, the... people aren't going to go back to their terrible jobs, risk of their unemployment benefits right now, like they're going to um, find something else to do. And they're not going to just go back to their terrible, terrible job. Interestingly, um, there was a episode of the New York Times Daily that came out a couple months ago, I forgot, I think it was over the summer, that basically followed um, a couple of people who did leave their terrible jobs during COVID. um, And they kind of We're talking about the fact that they're not planning on going back to their terrible job because they hated it and it was soul sucking. And why should they go back to a job that they hate when they can create some other path for themselves? And I think that that's something that's very, a lot of those people were um, not like laborers and and, like factory workers and stuff like that. But I do think that it's a very similar um, comparison there. this So someone someone online, I, I have this article, again, all of the resources linked on my Instagram on Tuesdays. Um, but it's being considered, quote, a second industrial revolution. I think that's very interesting. And that's kind of how I felt about it as well. And I, I felt like the news wasn't covering it in the magnitude that it should be. Um, and I think that the, the reason that it isn't is because the... Um, the government the federal government only counts strikes if they're larger than a thousand people so like a thousand employees or more need to walk out um and so if you like go to like the labor department strike dashboard it only looks like there's been like nine or so strikes so far this year when in fact there's been over a hundred um and so if people are only covering those larger strikes you only see that like oh there's only a couple strikes happening it's it's not as big of a deal it's just like a a little bit of, of like unrest like even if you think of like the I forget exactly what the numbers are because I didn't write them down, which is my own fault. Um, But like in compared to previous years, there's been less large strikes, but a lot more small strikes, um, which is very interesting. Um, So Biden is a very pro-labor president. He said that he wants to be, quote, the most pro-union president leading our most pro-union administration in American history, which he's going to have to battle that out with FDR, but I guess he can... He can say what he wants, but I'm not sure if he's going to succeed in that one. Um, but e- so the the interesting thing about those those numbers is if he does consider or if he changes the the ruling to consider all small strikes to be um, measured as as a strike with like within the federal government, he's going to see a lot more strikes on that dashboard. Right. So even though he's the most pro. Union president and he's been very supportive of all of the labor strikes. It's still pretty considerable when you see all of those strikes happening. Um, so it's not always like the most positive thing in the world to see all those strikes is not really a good sign for his economy, which I think is probably indicative of why he hasn't been talking about all of those little strikes and kind of has just been focusing on those larger ones. He's also not going to direct the, the Department of Labor to um, change their methodology in measuring strikes because looks better for him when he can just focus on those couple large strikes to talk about as opposed to talking about all of the many 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 strikes that happened Um, and again doesn't really look great for his economy um, and for his um, successes as a president. I think that's interesting I think that the media coverage around it um, would also be different if the government was um, measuring things differently regardless I feel like this whole set of events gives the aggressive tone of a a push DBQ that's going to be written in fifty years. I mean, I, I really hope that A push DBQs do not exist in fifty years, and that we have done away with the um with the College Board altogether. However, it does give me strong A push DBQ vibes. So, is this the beginnings of a communist uprising? Perhaps, perhaps we don't know for sure, but it does seem like. Uh, workers are just fed up with the way that labor is treated in this country. And I certainly think that this is, if if things continue the way they're going, I think that it definitely will hopefully lead to some kind of um, resurgence of, um, uh, of, of, of different ways that we can treat and consider labor in this country. Um, I'm very excited to see how that goes. And obviously, like all these strikes are continuing on. Um, and I'm sure won't go away. I know October is like strict Um, And they're probably going to continue into the holidays. Should be interesting. Should be interesting. But very quickly, I want to talk about Matthew McConaughey before I bring on my intern Ethan. Um, Matthew McConaughey is considering a run for Texas governor. Everyone's like, cool. Sounds great. Are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? His answer? Sure. Yep. Um, he is not being clear about his political opinions at all. Um, but he did an interview with Kara Swisher of the New York Times. And I'm going to recommend that you guys, I'm going to post all these resources again. Look at some of these quotes that he said. It's like absolutely ridiculous the way that he talks about um, his positions. My my personal favorite quote from this interview is, the armadillos are running free. I'm not going to give you context for that. You have to look at it yourself. Um, another great one. Um, quote, run for issues where I'm standing on this and bills and laws and policies, etc. When he was asked where he stands on certain issues. And the other great quote on that is, quote, voting rights. How do I stand on that? What? What do you mean? One of the largest issues in the country right now. He was unsure of what was meant by that. Um, I just think that's hilarious. He's probably an idiot, but he is running nine points ahead of Abbott, which is not inconsiderable. Um, so a race between him and Abbott probably wouldn't be, like, the same messy fight that would be that would happen between Abbott and Beto. Which, like, also sidebar, I would probably cry laughing if poor Beto O'Rourke lost to Matthew McConaughey in a Democratic primary. Like, it would just be, like, the most ridiculous thing ever to happen. Um, But it would be great. So, we love, we, whatever. We love chaos. We love chaos in this household. Um, So, read this transcript. I'm going to link it. It's great. Um, Just cry laughing reading some of these quotes. Like, he really does not know what he's talking about. But, anyway, this is a shout-out to my friend Mia at the University of Texas. Hook'em, horns. Hook'em, horns. Go, Matthew McConaughey. I'm interested to see if he continues this run. But with that, I'm now very excited to welcome my intern, Ethan. He's going to be, um, he's doing our first intern takeover again at the end of every show in the next couple of weeks. We're going to have an intern come on, um, talk about different issues, different stories that are important to them. But this is the first week of it. Ethan is on and he's going to be talking about redistricting in Nashville. So without further ado, I'm going to let Ethan take over. Oop, that's a bad sound.
1: Hello. Um all right hello everyone uh, my name is ethan Begge. Uh i am a resident of Nashville, tennessee and i want to discuss uh, the redistricting process um, and specifically how it's going to affect uh, uh, my hometown uh, as you all know every 10 years our nation conducts the census which determines how many seats in the house of representatives each state gets each state um then gets the census information and draws their congressional maps, with some states being more honorable with the process and others resorting to gerrymandering. Tennessee is looking like it might be in the latter column, as the state looks to possibly draw its largest city, Nashville, from congressional representation. Nashville, politically coterminous with Tennessee's 5th district, is a Democratic bastion in a sea of red, represented by Democrat Jim Cooper. Tennessee's 5th is one of two House seats out of the state's nine, that is represented by a Democrat, the other being Tennessee's ninth, which is politically determinist with Memphis. However, unlike Memphis, a majority African-American city that receives protection, uh, redistricting protection from the Voting Rights Act, uh, Nashville does not. Uh, to clarify, the Voting Rights Act necessitates majority uh, minority congressional districts to guarantee non-white citizens' voices in Congress. Um, Like I said, Nashville does not, meaning the state has the legal authority to draw out the city and split it among multiple districts dominated by suburban and rural conservative voters, effectively removing the city's voice from Congress. Many in the state GOP have openly flirted with the idea of cracking up the city. Um, State House Speaker Cameron Sexton, a Republican, has been cagey when asked if his caucus plans to split up the city. To quote Sexton directly in an interview he did with NBC News about splitting up Nashville's Davidson County, quote, there's been people who have proposed to split Davidson County, and there's been people who have proposed not to split Davidson County, end quote, adding that, quote, it's possible, end quote. Now, uh, drawing a city of 700,000 people out of representation in Congress is obviously anti-democratic. Gerrymandering out Nashville would particularly screw over the many black and brown voters in the city. While well, not a majority-minority city, like I said earlier, voters of color make up a significant chunk of the Democratic coalition in the city, and any plan to draw up the city would likely mean separating various majority-minority neighborhoods from each other, diluting their representation. This type of city splitting, while not seen by Nashville, is not unprecedented in America. Much of Austin was split in 2012 by the Texas GOP into districts stretching from Waco and the Houston suburbs, leaving the city with only one Democratic representative and currently shares as much as San Antonio. Cincinnati, Ohio, as well, was split between two Republican-controlled districts and has no Democratic representatives, as of right now. Big blue cities and red states are often vulnerable to gerrymandering, and if Nashville is split, it would follow a pattern we've seen in other GOP-controlled states, such as Texas, with the Republican Party being extremely aggressive in gerrymandering, even going so far as removing an entire city from Congress. The story of what's going on in Tennessee is a great microcosm of the Republican response to redistricting this cycle.
0: Awesome. Um, very, very interesting. I know my sister who's listening right now, uh, she also lives in Nashville, so she has been um, talking a lot about this issue with me as well. Um, so I, what I want to talk about a little bit is talk a little bit more about politics in Tennessee specifically, and then kind of open the conversation up about redistricting. So the the one interesting thing that's going on in Tennessee right now um, is kind of just within local politics. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the upcoming general election or primary election in the Tennessee 5th district um, and about the challenger candidate there and kind of what that election is gonna look like. But one, if the district stays the way it is, and then two, if the district does get split up um, into, or if the city gets split up into those crazy three districts.
1: So um, as of right now, if uh the Tennessee Republican Party were to keep uh Tennessee's fifth Congressional District, uh a well, represented, like I said, by Jim Cooper, who is a uh relatively moderate Democrat, um you know, he's facing a uh primary challenger from a uh progressive uh named Odessa Kelly. Uh she's in favor of Medicare for all, Green New Deal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he looks like if the district is kept uh in uh whole, he looks like he could be pretty vulnerable. Uh, to a primary, Uh, he didn't do as well as he should have uh, in his primary in 2020, and there's more energy around his opponent uh, as of right now. Uh, That's also playing into Republican calculations around the district. Uh, They really do not want a uh, squad member uh, representing Tennessee, Uh, and if they uh, don't draw out the district and Odessa Kelly were to win um, that primary, um, they would probably get a lot of flack from their base for um, allowing a uh, Justice Democrat into Congress. Uh, I mean, I, they would still probably get the same flag from a a regular Democrat in Congress, uh, like Jim Cooper, but you know, still it's a piece of the calculation there.
0: So kind of going off of that, um, when, can you talk a little bit about how redistricting works in Tennessee specifically, how that differs from other states, and then kind of the role that the current congressional delegation actually plays in that redistricting process?
1: Yeah, so uh, it is, uh, like a lot of states, it's by the state legislature, uh, but it's there's not much transparency. Um, the process is very much behind closed doors, uh, not much of the public knows what's going on. There's some forums that are being held, but, um, yeah, it's state legislator signed by Republican Governor Bill Lee, um, but, yeah, very much behind closed doors.
0: Right, and that differs from other states that kind of are a little bit more bipartisan in their efforts. Yeah, some or-
1: states will have um, redistricting commissions, but some states will even have partisan commissions that will, you know, at least kind of open their doors to some, uh to kind of some amount of transparency. And that's not what we're seeing in the state of Tennessee. And to answer your point about the current congressional delegation, um, an interesting point, um, is that a lot of the Republicans that represent the uh kind of the suburbs of Nashville, um and Middle Tennessee do not want this to happen because uh, uh they're worried that potentially their districts could become bluer over time. Uh Middle Tennessee and the Nashville Metro area is trending blue, not enough to Really cause much change as of right now, but um, you know, specifically Mark Green, who represents this uh, district stretching from Clarksville to um, Williamson County, Franklin. Um, he has been the lead Republican. He's a hardcore Trump uh, Freedom Caucus guy, um, and he uh, he's been one of the lead voices in um, saying no, we don't, we shouldn't split up Nashville. We we should we should keep it the way it is.
0: Right. That's really interesting, um, but they don't have any either like pl- tangible or intangible role in the redistricting process. No. So no. the state legislature can be like, all right, it's great that you think that, but actually yeah. we're just going to keep going ahead and doing yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. So I kind of want to expand the conversation now and talk a little bit about um, redistricting in other states and especially, mm-hmm. specifically states that are going to either gain or lose a seat. Nashville or Tennessee is staying consistent with the number of seats that they have. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. I, 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 the reason I wanted to bring up this story, uh, not just because I uh, live in Nashville um, but because it's really a great microcosm of what we're seeing in a lot of states. Uh, Texas uh, is doing a lot of really aggressive um, gerrymandering uh, this cycle. Um, usually, they're they're not necessarily trying to kick out many incumbents right now, but uh, very much making it, uh, very much packing a lot of uh, currently Democratic-controlled seats and then drawing the lines to where rural Republican uh, voters are put together with uh, more liberal... Uh, Democratic voters in the suburbs, a lot of times these are more diverse areas uh, that are being diluted out. Um, So there's also that element to it, uh, which is deeply uh, troubling. Um, Other um, states, Georgia, is looking like it might draw um, something fairly aggressive that might actually lead uh, to an incumbent uh, being defeated there. Um, But uh, some of this stuff hasn't been finalized as of right now. Um, But, um, you know, the way the uh process is uh working out, uh from the Republican side. Uh not that the Democrats haven't been gerrymandering. Uh if you look at uh Illinois for instance, uh where Adam Kinzinger, the anti Trump Republican, might end up getting uh booted out uh Most likely. Due to, he's gone. He's out yeah, of here. To, to sorry I, Adam. <laughs> either due to primary or due to the Democratic uh drawn lines there. Uh so if you look at that map that's an example of the Democrats. Uh, being uh bad <laughs> um, but um you know um yeah, we're seeing some pretty aggressive lines being drawn, and if Tennessee were to go the lengths of actually drawing out a city, um, you know that would be I think absolutely insane,
0: yeah, definitely, I think you you kind of jumped on my last point there um that we were that we were talking about earlier, but it's kind of the 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 main issue with the redistricting, obviously it's known that both parties do it Republicans do it a little bit more aggressively um so we were talking a little bit about before the show about whether or not um Democrats should be pushing back hard on Republicans with redistricting I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on that to just kind of wrap up our conversation I
1: mean it doesn't it it does not make us uh look good I think especially Illinois the the look of uh drawing out Adam Kinzinger uh that doesn't uh, that's not a politically very good look for the Democratic Party. I would I would say no, personally. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who've said yes. Um, I disagree, personally. But, um, you know, I, I, I would personally say that um, no, the party should not be engaging in, in that.
0: All right, there you go. I think that's a perfectly valid opinion, although yes, there are plenty of people who are going to disagree with you that well not heartily. But with that, it is time to wrap up the show for the week. Ethan, thank you so much thank you. for coming on. You did a great job. Um, same things I say every week. Follow the show on social media. Twitter is Sheep Thrills GW and Instagram is Sheep Thrills Radio. All of the links and everything, um, and a Spotify link are gonna be posted on um, online tomorrow. Um, every, yeah, that's it. Back again next week, Monday, 6 PM. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. And with that, have a great week and register for your mail-in ballot. Please, please register for your mail-in ballot. Vote in Virginia. All right. And with that, I will see you next week.